Well, good morning. I'm Ransom. I'm the pastor here, and I'm so thankful that you've joined us. We continue in our series through Matthew. And before we jump into Matthew 20, uh, 20 through 28, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we all come here with different kinds of mornings, different kinds of weeks, even different kinds of months and years, and yet we're here to hear your word, to sing to you, to praise you, to worship you, and so I pray this morning that I would not be a hindrance to that. I pray that we would learn from this passage of Scripture how we ought to be better followers of Christ, that we learn about how you love us so well, beyond our expectations, beyond what we deserve. This morning, bless us with open hearts and open ears. Help us to understand and be changed. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, Julie and I, uh, this one doesn't count for ice cream, Julie, sorry, um, uh, are in a phase of life where we're trying to train our children what the phrase read the room means. All right, read the room. Uh, And so, for instance, when someone's hurt and crying, it's not the right time to ask for more ice cream. You see that it's not, those two things don't match up. Um, I'll get back to that in a second, but before we describe why I'm bringing that up, let's look at the characters in this story real quick. We have, first, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, her name is Salome, not salami, the delicious Italian spiced meat, but this is uh, Salome. It's a Hellenized version of the word shalom, which means peace. I learned this week she's the aunt of Jesus, the aunt of Jesus. It's Mary's sister. Uh, And so that that makes it interesting because that makes James and John the cousins of Jesus. Fascinating. Adds a little dynamic to the story. I bring up the read the room scenario because Aunt Salome and cousins James and John need some practice in reading the room. And that all revolves around this word, then. The very first word of this passage means at that same moment. Then, let's see what happens just before we read this passage of Scripture. So, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the way, and he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. The very next thing is then. So at this moment, this is when Salome decides to bring her request to Jesus. She needs to read the room a little bit better, okay? Uh, This is not out of the blue, this request that she has. If we look even a little further back in Matthew 19, Jesus, this is right after the rich young man, he tells this to his disciples, truly I say to you in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me, speaking to the disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Salome, James, and John, they're kind of connecting some pieces of information here. It's just unfortunate in their timing that they use this moment to ask this thing. And so the structure of the sermon today is going to go like this. First, we're going to take a good look at what the request of Salome means. What is she actually asking? We're then going to look at uh, Jesus' reply. Now, the meat of the passage really does come in his reply. And then at the end of the sermon, I have two applications for us uh, to consider. Let's jump right in. So Jesus has declared what's about to happen. 
Salome and her two sons come up to Jesus, and here's what happens. They came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And when he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. What is she asking? First of all, let's look at the posture that she's asking in. Salome has deep, deep faith. Deep faith. First of all, she's kneeling. This is a word they would use for someone standing before a deity. So her nephew, she believes, is God in the flesh. That takes deep faith. Some of you know your own nephews, and it would take a lot of faith to believe that, all right? Uh, deep faith, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Beyond that, she also believes in this phrase, in your kingdom, that Jesus, this homeless traveling teacher and these 12 ragtag disciples, she believes that he will one day sit on the throne and rule all. It takes a lot of belief for Salome to look at the condition of Jesus, look at who Jesus is, and believe those things. So there's deep faith in her request. But that's not all. (laughs) Uh, Her deep faith is also a self-centered faith. It's self-centered. It's selfish. She's humbly asking for something. She's doing all the right things. She's kneeling before Jesus. That's right. She believes that this, this teacher, this what seems to be a human, will is God and will raise himself up and become king. That, that's good, but what's her request? What's her request? She's humbly asking for something that's super selfish. She is respectfully but selfishly asking for power and privilege. Um, quick detour. Uh, oftentimes I'm asked uh, some tips on Bible study. That's something that happens as a pastor. And one of the things that I try to relay to folks is the fact that w- when we're reading the Bible, we have to do our best to understand the original intent of the, of the Scripture. We have to kind of boil that down to what it means, and then we have to apply it to our lives. That's the basic three-part uh, instruction of how to study the Bible for yourself. And in that last category for application, I generally give uh, an acronym, SPEC, S-P-E-C-K, SPEC. And it's five questions. First, is there a sin to confess? That's the first question you should ask. Is there a promise to believe? <clears throat> is there an example to follow? Is there a command to, to obey or a truth to know? SPEC. Uh, In this passage, as we look at Salome and we ask those questions, the first one we come to, is there a sin to confess? And I would say, yes, there is a sin to confess. By her example of what not to do, we can see something in our own lives that we do frequently. I do it anyways. Um, We all do what she's doing. We all confidently go to God, and we, we, we go to God for things that come from a selfish misunderstanding of his will for our lives. I do it all the time. Here's an example. Uh, I say, listen, Lord, I read my Bible this morning. I prayed. Why aren't my kids behaving better? Lord, I I did this and I did that. Why isn't the expectation that I I had being fulfilled? Why aren't you granting this request? This is how it should go. Salome here is doing all the right things. She's kneeling before Jesus. That's right. She believes that he is going to be king, that he's God in the flesh. That's right. But what is she doing? She is saying, I want my sons to be at the uttermost point of power and privilege in your kingdom. I do it. You do it. We all do it. And so if there's a sin to confess, it's that. Leon Morris, 
in his commentary, says this about this moment. We must deplore the self-seeking implicit and their desire to get chief places for themselves. We should not like that. But at the same time, we should appreciate their deep conviction in the end, Jesus would certainly establish his kingdom. Do you see the dichotomies there? You see the, the yin and yang sort of thing? They did it in the right way, but they were asking for something that was completely self-serving. We do the same thing. And so as we think about a sin to confess, we ought to confess that we, we've done this, we will do it again, and we ought to say we should not come to the Lord with our own agenda. I should not come to Jesus, even in the proper way, the way He is, has told me to come, with my own agenda. So let's take a look back to the story. What is she actually asking? I think it's interesting that James and John are cousins because we can see now a little bit of nepotism at play, right? Uh, uh, nepotism is gaining favor because you're related to somebody. So here we have James and John cousins. Why shouldn't they be at the right and left of Jesus? They're related. But, but let's take a look at this. What are they asking? They're asking to be placed at the top of the hierarchy of power. At the top. So if you're not on the throne, there's two other places that are coveted. The right, the right hand, or so for you it would be this side, the right hand is the place of most honor, likely for James. He's the older brother. So she's asking, can James be in the place of most honor? Not the king, but the, the second to the king. And on the left, it's a little less than the right, but it's still pretty high up. It's the, the third place of honor, and that's likely reserved for John in their request. So they're asking to be at the top of power privilege. Secondly, this is a bit of a coup against Peter. All right, this... They are not pleased that Peter seems to have this special position with Jesus. Since Matthew 16, when Peter's the one who first declared who Jesus was accurately, Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. It's apparent that even at the transfiguration, Peter has this special place in some form in the building of Christ's kingdom moving forward. And it's likely that James and John did not like that. They thought it should be them. They thought it should be them. They wanted the special role. So what does this request reveal? It reveals that even as close as we are to Jerusalem, as close as we are to the cross, the disciples are still skewed in their idea of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He's saying over and over again, I'm going to go, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to die, but I'll be raised again. And they're thinking, man, when Jesus overthrows Rome, dot, dot, dot. They're skewed. And, and Jesus confirms this confusion on their behalf in his initial response. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. You do not know what you're asking. I read that with compassion. I read that with compassion. In Mark, it points out that right before this, Jesus is actually walking out in front of the disciples. Imagine what's going through the mind of Christ as he comes to the end of his mission. He's about to face something torturous and awful. And so if I'm him, I'm walking out there and I'm thinking through these things and I'm ruminating on what I'm about to go through. And so when they say, we want to be at your right and your left, he's saying, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know. He has compassion and kindness and care. Leon Morris, again, again, his pillar commentary is great. He says, despite all the teaching Jesus had given, they had still not realized that the kingdom meant lowliness, sacrifice, and rejection in this world. 
I love these questions. He has two questions. Who would ask for places of honor in such a kingdom? Who could ask for places of honor in it? To ask the questions to show that one has not understood what the kingdom is, it's impossible to seek greatness for oneself in it. You don't know what you're asking, replies Jesus. And then he goes on with another question, and this is a a hard one. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able, speaking to James and John, able to drink the cup that I drink? In the Old Testament, the cup referred to the wrath of God. Listen to the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk it to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. In other words, you're drunk with wrath. You've had so much uh, uh, rebellion against God. You are filled, overfilled with God's wrath, and it's coming for you. Of course, two chapters later, we get the suffering servant passage. But the cup here, even in the New Testament, also refers to the wrath of God. Jesus, in a few chapters, he's, he's in the garden and he's praying. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup. And so Jesus is asking them, can you face what I'm going to face? The cup, the wrath, the sacrifice, the suffering, the rejection. And their response ought to break our hearts. Imagine them puffing out their chests. Imagine them, they haven't even asked what he means, they haven't considered it, and they say, we are able. That's rough. We are able. They don't even know what he's talking about. They are just blinded by their desire for self-glory. Yeah, whatever that means, as long as it's right and left, we're in. And in verse 23, we get to the official response of Jesus. So we see that they were requesting honor. They were requesting to to leapfrog Peter. They wanted power and privilege. And here is the official response of Jesus. We start with a very sad truth. He says to them, you will drink my cup. You will drink my cup. Interestingly enough, think about just a, a few days from now, Jesus is getting arrested. Who runs for the hills? All of the disciples, including James and John, so much for drinking the cup. But later, James, and from Acts 12, we find out his fate. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was beheaded by Herod for what? Following Christ. He drank the cup. John lived a very long life, but it was a life full of persecution and exile, One of the early church fathers recounts how John, in the middle of the Colosseum, was dipped in boiling oil as amusement. He survived it. He survived it. And the the early church father says that uh, he recounts that the entire Colosseum came to know Jesus. So write that one down, Steve. Hot oil dunk tank. We're going to try that one for outreach sometime. All right? Hey, if it saves people, we're in. All right. Uh, Then after that, of course, he was exiled at Patmos. He died of an old, old age in the city of Ephesus. He drank the cup his whole life. He drank it. And so the sad truth, they say, we're able. And Jesus, as you can imagine, his heart heavy says, you will drink my cup. You will. And then he goes on to make sure they understand something else. Second part of verse 23, but to to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. 
It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I love this moment because Jesus is showing us, he's, he's being an example for us. Jesus is being an example for us. Jesus, as we just heard from our, our confession of faith, how much power does Jesus have? All of it. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so could he have very well said, sure, right and left, you got it. Yes, he could have. But instead, what does he do? He submits. He subordinates himself to the Father. You see, submission in this case and in ours is not meaning that he's less than. It's an act of trust in God. That's what submission is. It's become a dirty word in our, in our, in our society. But what is submission? It's an act of trust in the plan of God. And so what Jesus is saying to James and John is, God has a plan for you. You have a role to play, and that's the role that you will play. He's, he's saying, it's not for me to say. We are James and John in this case. We want to always rise above our station. <laughs> we want to rise above our station. We want to be more important than we actually are. And, and that's the problem. In this, we'll talk about the problem in this moment in a second. But what Christ is doing, I love this, he never asks us to do something he hasn't already done. Remember the question, is there an example to follow? Jesus is saying, if I can submit to the Father, so can you. So can you. And then he gives an explanation of the issue. And so look at this. Verse 24 is kind of a, a narration piece, but it's so important. And when the ten heard, so the other ten disciples heard what they had asked, they were indignant, which means very angry, at the two brothers. And Jesus calls them all to him for this teachable moment. One author this week I was reading said, the two were wrong, but so were the ten. <laughs> what are they upset about? How dare you jump in line? What if, we, what if one of us would have been at the right and left side? And so Jesus explains. He wants all of them to hear this because he knows they all misunderstand it. He says first, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus, Jesus is describing how the world views hierarchy. The closer you are to the leader, the closer you are to the top, the more position, the more privilege, the more wealth, the more importance, the more stature you gain for who? Yourself. For yourself. It's top down. How can I be served? He says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's not about position and privilege. It's about suffering and service. These two words, servant, slave, this would have an impact on these disciples. These are the two lowest social positions in this culture. Servant, slave. You must be the lowest of the low to be great in my kingdom. As I was looking for a summary, a good solid summary of this, I love what John Calvin has to say about this argument that the disciples are having. He says, what's the point of fighting over nothing? What's the point of fighting over nothing? And what he means is, there is no such thing as a hierarchy of power in Christ's kingdom. So what are they arguing about? Something that doesn't exist. They're arguing about something that doesn't exist in Christ's kingdom. Michael Green says, in the upside-down kingdom, greatness is measured in terms of service. And I want you to think about what we are, church. We're a ministry, right? We're a ministry to one another. 
We're a ministry to our community. Now think about this word ministry, to minister. What does it mean? It means to care for, help, to attend to the needs of. That's what we are. It's not an organization where you can be the president. It's not how it works in the church. It's upside down for what the world thinks. I tell this to my officers as we're, our officers as we're training. I tell them, you did not just get promoted. You just got demoted. You got demoted. See, the church isn't a clamor to the top. It's actually a clamor to the bottom. That's the kingdom of Christ. And the church, just like then, is the same now. It's upside down. Christ's kingdom. So we've seen the request for power. We've seen Jesus rebuke that idea that it can't even exist in His kingdom. And now we come to the application for ourselves. So is there a command in this passage? When there's commands, we have to sit up, listen, and obey. So what's the command? Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. This is a command. Jesus is telling us what to do. He's telling us, whoever is to be great must be your servant. Command. Whoever would be first must be your slave. Command. Not a suggestion. It's not a life hack, right? He's saying, this is how it is in my kingdom. And so what should we do? What's the answer? The answer for us is we need to seek to be more servant-like. That's, that's part of the answer. Be more servant-like. But to be more servant-like on its own is the worst application you could receive from your pastor, okay? It's the worst. Because why? Our good works don't stand on their own. They can't stand on their own. You see, if I, went to a, if I went to a mosque or I went to a synagogue or I went to a Buddhist temple when I gave the message, be more servant-like, you know what they'd all say? Amen. Good. Be, be better. But that's not how it works. I love how Sinclair Ferguson says this, that kind of thinking results in moral one-upmanship rather than tear-stained faces of repentance. When you say, be more like a servant, it suddenly becomes a competition to the top again. So there's something, there's got to be something else besides be better. Because I can't be, can you? And it comes from this idea that the kingdom, all of it, every part of it is upside down. Let's look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom of God, folks, is upside down in every single aspect, including our king. Including our king. Our king served us. Our king served us. He deserved to have all glory and all power and all privilege. And what did he do? He put himself at the very bottom. He gave his life as a ransom for many. What a great word, ransom. Um, it means substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. First Peter says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus, our King, our Savior, through His body and His blood, saved us from our sins. That's how He served us. 
John Grudem in his, John Grudem in his uh, uh, systematic theology, he refers, as he's talking about this idea of substitutionary atonement, he calls Jesus our vicar. And I don't know if you've ever seen some old British shows, but they used to call the pastor the vicar. And he says he calls Jesus his vicar because Christ's death was therefore vicarious for us. He stood in our place and represented us. And as our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. If Christ had not paid the full penalty, there would still be condemnation left for us. But since he has paid the full penalty that is due us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what our king did for us. That's how our king served us. He took away our condemnation. So who's the hero of the story? What's the, the main point of this scripture passage? The main point, the hero, is the lavish mercy of God personified in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. It, it, yes, we ought to be more servant-like, but how can that be? We are, we are more servant-like because our Christ, our Jesus, our Savior served us first by giving himself. Ephesians 2, I reference it often. I think it's a great summary of the gospel. I tend to, to talk about being dead in your trespasses, and I, I go to verse 4, and I look at the first two words, and I tend to emphasize, but God, meaning we couldn't do anything, but God. He's the, he undoes our un, un, inability, and he does it for us. But listen to what it says after this, after but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the service that Christ gave to us. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan pastor, said, we are saved because the love of God is invincible. It overcomes all difficulties. Do you hear that? The love of God's invincible. Now, I recognize in my life, I think many of you even this morning, you hear this, you hear that the hero is the lavish mercy of God personified in Jesus Christ. You hear that God is merciful and loving. His love is indestructible. And you might respond, I don't feel it. I don't feel God's mercy, Ransom, frankly. I don't, I don't, I don't feel it. Uh, just like in our call to worship, evils encompass me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. It refers to something. It refers to the fact that there, there can be obstacles to our awareness of God's mercy. Now notice, I didn't say obstacles to God's mercy, our awareness of God's mercy. And it's those two things. It's either the hurt that we've experienced because of the sin that's in the world. Some of us have been hurt, either directly by someone else's sin, or we're feeling the brokenness of this world. Whether it's our health or, or relationships, whatever it might be, this world is not whole, and so it hurts to live here. There's this book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and he speaks to this idea. First, those who are in a place where their life circumstances are, are causing them to lose their awareness of God's mercy. He says this, the evidence of God's mercy is not your life, your, not your circumstances. That's not the evidence of God's mercy. The evidence of God's mercy towards you is the life of Christ, mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned eternally in your place. That is God's mercy. 
It's the truth. The other thing that this psalm points out is that uh, one of the other ways we become uh, unaware or we lose awareness of God's mercy is our own sin. (laughs) Our own sin. Man, I've really messed things up, we think. How could God have mercy on me, we think. Here's what Dane has to say to them, to us. Do you know that Christ, what Christ does with those that squander mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. The things that make you cringe the most make Him hug the hardest. That is the character of God our Father. That's the character of Jesus Christ. He is the personification of that lavish mercy. This is the character of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. Mercy, 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 mercy. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the truth that will empower us, that will motivate us to what? Serve one another in the same way. Jesus served us. Our King served us. That's the kind of mercy the king of the upside-down kingdom lavished on us. Let me pray. Lord, the human heart is resistant to your mercy. We're resistant to it. Something about the sin in our lives makes us gravitate towards difficulty and wanting things to be difficult. Maybe it's pity. I don't know what it is. But Lord, we... We sometimes prefer not to look at your mercy. Our hearts gravitate towards doing as we please, to rebel against our God and our Father, to make ourselves gods like like James and John, to rise above our station, ourselves. And the only way of undoing this was not to tell us to be better alone, but to say, watch this. Watch this. I will make the wrath of God fall upon me, you said to us. I will face that for you. I will bring you back to life. Dead men can't get better. Live ones can see Jesus, experience the power of the Spirit, and serve one another. Why? Because we're in the kingdom, a kingdom of a king who serves us. We don't have to worry about getting what we need because we have everything in Jesus. I pray, Father, that this message would come true in my life. I pray that I would not go to you uh, with religion and do things the right way and, 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 and tell you how good I've been and then expect to get what I desire, expect to have my expectations met. Instead, may I submit myself to the will of God. May I trust you, follow you, obey you, and serve as you call me to serve. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for this church. Thank you for everyone who is listening online. I pray the truth of the scripture would seep in and that we'd see your lavish mercy that you have for us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.